Hey, Tripod listeners, I want to introduce the segment that you're about to hear. It's a new extra, uh, and it's a conversation that I had with a man named John Barbary. He is the Director of Development and Programming, Language, and Culture Revitalization for the Tunica Biloxi Tribe of Louisiana. He is a part of the Tunica Biloxi Nation, which is a native tribe to Louisiana, and their land is out in Marksville, Louisiana, about three hours northwest of New Orleans. And I met with John. He was here in town to give a lecture at the historic New Orleans collection uh, as part of the programming for their exhibition, New Orleans, The Founding Era. And I went to that lecture that he gave, which was really interesting. And then we met up the next day at the hotel that he was staying at to, to talk more about the history of the Tunica Biloxi and their contributions to New Orleans and to Louisiana and the years and centuries that they were here before the official founding of New Orleans, before 1718, and relationships to colonizers, relationships to the Americans once the Louisiana Purchase happened. It was really great to talk to him. Um, You might hear, because we were in this hotel, we got moved around a lot, and at first we were in the restaurant, but it was too loud, and then we went outside to the pool area, uh, which was really great and quiet, but then... Uh, One person got in the pool and started very loudly doing laps at 9 a.m. So we had to move uh, to this kind of random storage room in the hotel, which was fine, except for that some of the employees of the hotel were going in and out. So you might hear some doors opening and closing here and there, but that's just what was up. So uh, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with John Barbary of the Tunica Biloxi. And we start in the era that the tribe makes contact with Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto. When de Soto encountered them, uh, they could call up an army of thousands of warriors, you know, within hours. You know, there's this story about a, a, an old chief who comes out of his his a dwelling you know, and it's set atop this large mound and he's wielding down the side of the mountain with a big uh, war axe and you know and even though he was well long in the tooth and old he had the knowledge that he had the power of this large army uh, and so the, the Soto you know they you know instead of just going in and ravaging everything you know they actually you know basically met peacefully not to say the Soto had a, his effect you know, I joke about, you know, him bringing pigs to the New World and, you know, we love pork today. But he also brought a disease that really just, you know, decimated our population. You know, when uh, the French encountered the Tunica, you know, about 150 years later, you know, we were a fraction of the size that we were. So we're talking about, you know, contact with DeSoto and, and the disease. We're ta- That's like mid-16th century, because then the French start coming in and start meeting with the Tunicas around 1700, right? Right, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. So describe then the relationship, what happens between the French and the Tunica? From the very beginning, uh, there was a uh, some French priests that were coming down river, and they stopped at the Tunica village. The French asked if they could start a mission. Of course, you know, they wanted to save souls. And uh, so the, the Tunica allowed them to set up a, a mission. Uh, there was a priest by the name of Davion 
who actually uh, lived with the tunica there. And one of the things that, I, that I've read about is that he wasn't necessarily uh, successful in converting souls, but the tunicas uh, kept him there. They thought that he was a good connection for them, so they would uh, open up this friendship with the French and actually created a new market for their salt and their horses. And, and uh, so from that time, uh, you know, the French viewed them as uh, a, a friendly, small native nation, indigenous nation. Uh, and so it just opened up a lot of doors for the, the reputation that the Tunica had for being warriors, uh, being good trade people, uh, and also, uh, you know, being diplomatic partners among the other tribes. So, uh, yeah. The Tunica uh, really ruled the trade along the river. So how did they accomplish that? Well, as uh, they were big in the salt trade, and that was a, a highly uh, big commodity that was in high demand, and so uh, that was something that the, colonia- uh, the colonials needed. Um, and then there was the, the horse trade. Now, the horses actually came from uh, through the Caddo's. The Caddo's were in the west, the southwest, and so that through Texas into Mexico, there was this huge trade route. And um, because the French legally could not trade with the the Spanish at that time, uh, the French actually went through these native tribes, uh, and Petunicas were big in that. And so, so they had horses, they had salt, and then of course they helped them with food and, and then diplomacy, and then they had some military might at that time. Um, of course, things changed. So, what changed for the tribe and and the nation? after the Louisiana Purchase in 1804? Well, uh, as I said, the codependence, it was less uh, when the Americans took over. uh, They didn't really need, by that time, New Orleans was well-established. You know, there was other smaller uh, forts and, you know, on the coast and, you know, up in Natchitoches. So there was a uh, the colonials had really a foothold at that point, and they didn't depend on the tribes, uh, the, the smaller tribes, later on, especially after the American period. And by that time, the Tunica and the Biloxi people and the Ovo people living where they were in a Vols, what is now Vols Parish, were less uh, an issue for, for the Americans. And so even though the Spanish had designated a one-league square for our village, which is there's documentation on that, uh, the Americans did not honor that, that, that arrangement. It sounds like despite the pros and cons of Europeans arriving and all of the dynamics that went on there, there was, at the end of the day, some level of respect for the land of the indigenous people, and that really changed with the Americans. Yeah, well, the, the, uh, the Americans really had no official knowledge of, of the Tunica and Biloxi. Uh, I mentioned uh, there's a report by an American Indian agent, uh, John Sibley, in the early 19th century, and he makes references to the Tunica and Biloxi and says that they're just remnants and that it was most likely they wouldn't be around very much longer. So that was really the only official information that the federal government had about these small tribes in, in that area. By the 20th century, the tribe had become very poor, and at this time, members of the tribe and are realizing that they need help and this is this is kind of the beginning of the attempt to try to gain federal recognition right remind me how that all happened my grandfather's generation this was probably back in the 20s or uh, 30s 
a lot of tribal men worked in the local uh, sawmills. There was a big sawmill at Woodworth, and so when that closed, you know, they, they were without jobs, and so uh, several of my grandfather's brothers moved to southeast Texas, you know, close to Beaumont and some in, in Houston area, and uh, to follow work. They had to support their families, and so there was a large group that went. Now, my, my great-grandfather, Eli Barber, who stayed back, um, he saw how well they were doing when they moved to Texas, and even though he was trying to get help from the federal government, he was with that delegation of tribal men that went up there to talk directly with the BIA. They, they drove, you know, the community supported them. They gathered money and they drove their Model T Ford to D.C., you know, from Louisiana, which is a long journey. The BIA is the Bureau for Indian Affairs. Yeah, Indian Affairs, yes. Uh, so my great-grandfather was one of those that encouraged the community to follow the advice of this person from the BIA that the tr- community should move to Texas. And I think he was, at the time, he was looking out for the best interest of the tribe. Um, it's uh, In hindsight, it's more, uh, uh, it was probably kind of short-sighted. Um, but there was enough of the, uh, I guess, of the elders and, and the commu- community who, dis- who wanted to stay, keep the land where they were. So in the long run, it benefited the tribe, uh, tribal community, because it, it, it's a basis for, you know, industry that we have you know we're in the casino resort business and uh we you know we have a reservation we wouldn't have had a reservation if we moved to texas this is before we got federal recognition so who knows how that would have turned out so uh we kept our land base we kept you know this is where we were who we were so in our process to gain federal recognition we had a land base we had a continuous government we had history tracing us back to back in to earlier times, and so it was that continuum uh, uh, that helped us in the long run to to be identified as a federally recognized tribe. I just want to ask a couple of questions about the tricentennial, a word that I don't know <laughs> if everyone's sick of yet, but very simply, just how do you feel about the tricentennial, and how do you feel about the tricentennial in the framing of it as a uh, not only an anniversary but a celebration well i mean i love new orleans um i was born here i love the city and i like the whole idea of uh of the various programs i've heard about uh, exploring uh, who made up the new what new orleans is and it's multicultural we all know that and I, I love to have the opportunity to talk about the Tunica and Biloxi and Ofo's role in, in that whole story. And, you know, I mean, be it good or bad about the effects of colonialism on, you know, the native populations, uh, you know, in this region, we learn to live together and adapt and, uh, and we're still here. And, uh, I, you know, so is New Orleans. And so, you know, they both struggled and, uh, uh, I just like the the idea that we were able to say that we're part of that bigger story. And how do you feel indigenous nations like the Tunica Biloxi are being recognized and represented in the tricentennial programming? Uh, the whole idea of native people being able to tell their own story, you know, from their perspective, and and some of it's dark, and and, it, and a lot, of, you know, and uh, it gloss, had been glossed over, you know, and you don't hear. There's not a lot of, of, 
opportunity in the schools, public schools, private schools, or whatever, talking about really from the uh, Native Americans' perspective how history evolved in this area. We have more of an opportunity to do that now. I mean, it's more of a comprehensive story. Uh, and it's from our perspective. That's what the change, I think a big change is, you know. Uh, even though we're a small community, we can tell our story and sh- show how we influence the development of, of Louisiana. John Barbary is the Director of Development and Programming, Language and Cultural Revitalization Program for the Tunica Biloxi Tribe of Louisiana, and he just came out with a new book, The Tunica Biloxi Tribe, Its Culture and People. John, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was a, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Tripod is a production of WWNO New Orleans Public Radio in collaboration with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at UNO. Special thanks to Evan Christopher for the opening theme music, to the entire Tripod Editorial Committee, and to Tripod Editor Eve Abrams. Also, special thanks to Tripod intern Christy Lorio for assistance on this episode. Give us a review. Give us a rating. It helps a lot. Uh, so keep keep it up with that. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TripodNola. Also, the talk that John Barbary gave at the Historic New Orleans Collection was part of the programming for their exhibition, New Orleans, The Founding Era. And that exhibition is on view until or through May 27th. Uh, at their Royal Street location. So the exhibition is through May 27th, so you still have time to go catch it. And I actually found out that the reason that it is ending on May 27th, little known fact, is that a lot of the items are on loan, uh, and on loan from places in France and other parts of Europe, and no museum will allow New Orleans to hold their items through hurricane season. So it's kind of incredible because there's a good like five months that um, exhibits can't can't have anything from on loan from outside of of the city or state. So you still have some time depending on when you're listening to this, but uh, go check it out. It's a great exhibit. And uh, next week we're going to hear a youth produced tripod episode about the Vietnamese community out in New Orleans East. Very excited to present that to you all. So until then. I'm Lane Kaplan Levinson, and I'll try pod you later. Oh, no, oh, no,